And we're, I want to start with a, an example from uh, Chuck Swindoll. I want you to pretend, this is from his book, um, Improving Your Serve. I want you to pretend that you work for me. As a matter of fact, I want you to be my executive assistant in a rapidly growing company. I'm the owner. I'm interested in expanding overseas. To pull this off, I make plans to travel abroad. I'm going to stay there until that branch gets established, and I'm going to leave you in charge of our busy stateside operation. I tell you uh, that I will write to you regularly, and I'll give you direction and instruction. So I leave and you stay, maybe it's here in Chicago, months pass, a flow of letters are sent from Europe, received by you at our national headquarters, maybe here in Chicago. I spell out all my expectations. Finally, I return and soon after my arrival, I drive down to the office and I'm stunned. Grass and weeds have grown up high. A few windows along the office street are broken. I walk into the receptionist's office and she's doing her nails, chewing gum and listening to her favorite disco station. Chuck Swindoll wrote this a while ago. Um, I look around and notice the waste baskets are overflowing. The carpet hasn't been vacuumed for weeks and nobody seems concerned that the owner has returned. I ask about your whereabouts and someone in the crowded lounge points and yells, I think he's in there. I think she's in there. Disturbed, I move down the hall and bump into you as you are finishing a chess game with our sales manager. He asks you to step into my office, which has been converted into a television room for watching soap operas. What in the world's going on, man? What do you mean? Well, look at this place. Didn't you get any of my letters? Letters, you reply. Oh, yeah, we got every one of them. As a matter of fact, uh, we had a letter study every Friday night since you left. We even divided the personnel into small groups and discussed the things you wrote in your letters. Some of them were really interesting. You'd be pleased to know many of us have actually committed to memory some of the sentences and paragraphs in your letters. One or two even memorized an entire letter or two. Great, great stuff in those letters. And I say, okay, okay, you got my letters, you studied them and you meditated on them, you discussed them, but what did you do about them? Do? Well, we didn't do anything about them. James the book, the letter, the epistle, is written to us so that we might indeed be hearers, doers, growers, if you will, and grow to spiritual maturity. James is a reminder that his epistle or his letter and the other books of the New Testament and the books of the Old Testament and the biographies of Jesus we call the Gospels and the history of what God's done in the book of Acts, that these are given to us so we might not just be hearers of the word, who maybe really like the letters so much that we put them in a leather-bound book. We might not just be hearers of the word, but we might be doers, which leads us to be growers and more. Now, let me remind you that this is also written to Christians. It's very important that you don't walk through the book of James or the letter of James, the epistle of James, and maybe you're a guest, maybe you're watching us online, and you say, well, I'm just going to do good things. James is telling me to be a good religious person. And let me just tell you, that's not James' intent at all. And trying to be like Jesus, right, outside of the power of Jesus, actually dishonors Jesus and discourages you. Let me say it again, trying to be like Jesus, maybe you read James, I'm going to be more like Jesus, James' half-brother. Trying to be like Jesus outside the power of Jesus dishonors Jesus and discourages you. And so what we're going to look at today is this letter written to Christians. We're going through it for weeks now with our 
Moody Church staff. We're gonna, we've already, Abby's already read the passage, so we're gonna just jump right into walking uh, through the passage, and we'll look at how we might apply this letter to our lives. Um, my, my name's Ed Stetzer, and interim teaching pastor here, by the way. Uh, we're all praying and excited about the uh, future announcements to come about our pastoral candidate. I want you to be, I'm, I'm praying hard as, as well. I've had the privilege of serving you for uh, three and a half years, but part of my job is to be done. There's a word, it's reason it's called interim. Didn't expect interim to be three and a half years, but there's a reason, uh, which is longer, by the way, than four of your actual pastors served as pastor of this church. Um, but I still remember when I got that call from Bill Burchie, we're thinking about six months. And he was, just four, eight, six months periods as well. So nevertheless, math was never Bill's strength, as some of you have recalled from a tragic sermon. Anyway, let's move on from there. You can go back and find that one. Uh, so there's four things I want us to glean today from this passage. And the first one is probably pretty obvious just from the text. We're talking about hearers, doers, and growing to spiritual maturity. The first one is slow down. Is there's a very clear sense I mean, and, and that's kind of advice that we're hearing from a lot of people in general. I, I, I almost thought we were going to have a sermon illustration. You know, I've told you before that God sometimes brings pastors through experiences so that you might have sermon illustrations. So this morning on the way to church, uh, Andrew and I were driving together here, and uh, the person in front of us decided to try to beat the train at the train tracks and, and, and change changed his or her mind right at the last second because that would have been an example that I wouldn't want to share with you. But tragedy often comes from rushing rather than slowing down. Let's look at James chapter one, and we're gonna specifically look at verses 19 and 20. It says, know this, my beloved brothers. Now, this is written to brothers and sisters. We're using language that would be uh, plural in this context. Knowing this, my beloved brothers and sisters, let each person this is all of us, each person is everybody, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Can I just tell you, if this last clause were to be lived out as Christians, it could really change the world in which we live. Because sometimes we believe the anger of man does actually produce the righteousness of God, but God doesn't use ungodly means for godly purposes. Let me say it again. God doesn't use ungodly means for godly purposes. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So we're gonna look at this and there's kind of three key phrases that we could walk through. Uh, first is to be slow to speak. Uh, now I've, I've reversed the order just a little bit and I'll explain why in a moment, but uh, slow to speak is a key one, right? Now you say to me, I mean, I'm probably the, uh, not the person to be the example of slow speech. I see you laughing out there, I see you. Don't do that for me, you don't do that for me. I, I do talk fast, there's two reasons. Um, one is, because I'm from New York, and the other is, because I have a lot to say. And the elders here do not allow me to have the hour and a half sermon that I believe God has for you each Sunday. <laughs> so I have to shrink it down to 35 ungodly minutes um, and to share it with you. But no, to be fair, I'm an extroverted person. My, my, when I was talking about this passage to Donna, my wife, who's an introvert, um, we read it and I look at Donna, isn't this, I mean, look at this beautiful passage, know this, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. She says, you know, that's not a problem for me at all, that's your issue. <laughs> Your wife sees clearly, doesn't she? 
right? But, but in my case, you know, I, I, I'm an extrovert and I do talk through things. I, I express and I even, I even think out loud. And I want you to know that's not always a good thing. Matter of fact, in, over and over again in Scripture, we see things like slow to speak, right? So to speak, followed or illustrated by passages like this one in Proverbs 17, 27. It's whoever, whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. I don't know about you, but I want to be counted among those who have knowledge and a person of understanding. And, and, and one of the reminders clear for us is to be slow to speak. And this is a really important practice for every Christian, extrovert or introvert. And then it says this, right? It says slow to anger, slow to anger. And again, a passage from Proverbs says, whoever is slow to anger, there's a phrase right there that connects deeply to James. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Now, if this was a modern translation or a paraphrase, maybe from the great theologian, Mr. T, it would say, I pity the fool who loses his or her anger, loses his or her temper. I mean, it really feels that way, right? Um, has a hasty temper, exalts folly. Pity that fool. Now, again, the challenge is, I mean, we're, as we hear slow to speak and slow to anger, and maybe for many of you, you're listening to this, and we're living in a world where far too many Christians are being discipled by their cable news choices and spiritually shaped by their social media feed. And when you hear slow to speak and slow to anger, you immediately think of Facebook. And if that's the case, it may be time for you to find a new way to communicate your thoughts. Or, or maybe it's just you think about in your family where you have a short fuse, right? Can I just say that having a short fuse is not a justification, it's an excuse for what can be a sinful pattern in your life and mine. James calls us to a different way. James says, be slow to speak, be slow to anger, and then it says, be quick to hear. Again, I put that last. Partly I put that last because in our way of thinking, there's kind of a, kind of a trajectory that we do, and it's a reminder for us that we got one mouth and two ears, and we want to be quick to hear. Now, Jesus uses a phrase I think is helpful for us every single day. He uses it for specific situations. But in Matthew 13, 9, Jesus reminds us to, oh, I think I skipped this. He who has ears to hear, Matthew 13, 9, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. So we walk through, right? We see slow to speak, slow to anger, right? And then quick to hear, he who has ears, let him hear. Remember, again, anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. You can't do God's best when you're angry with a man, man or woman's anger, with a person's anger. There's a righteousness and a righteous anger that can come from the Lord. Our Lord Jesus himself was angry, but the reality is he was not sinning in his anger. The Bible specifically says, be angry and do not sin. So we see slow to speak, slow to anger, uh, quick to hear. And let me just say that in the context here of James, hearing and doing the word, this is the context of how we receive, in just a moment we'll see this, the word of God. But I want you to know that this passage could be life transforming for every arena in your life. It could impact where you work, it could impact your relationship with your family members, it could impact your online interaction. If you would take 
this clear teaching of the Bible. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I think sometimes people in wanting to have that verse or two verses in their right context would say, this is about receiving the word of God. And I would say it is, but I would also say this has application to a whole lot of other places. Number one on our outline is slow down. Slow down your speech, slow down your responses, slow down your anger and listen more. Can I tell you uh, just this passage over the course of my marriage has been one of the passages that has built the strongest elements in our marriage. Because I had to learn to slow down, I had to learn to listen, and particularly I'm an extrovert, she's an, extro she's an introvert, I had to listen in a way that she would communicate. So don't just say that, well, this only applies to how we might receive the word of God taught. No, this applies and could change your relationships. Well, number two in our outline. Number one is, of course, we've talked about this idea first and foremost, slow down. But number two is prepare to receive. Now, this is a practice that we could actually undertake each and every Sunday here at Moody Church. You could, you could actually undertake it every Tuesday when you sit in your devotion time. And it's really a two-part process with some word pictures that James uses. Here's the passage. It's James chapter 1, verse 21. It says, therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil excess, humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save you. Now, this is actually uh, here. James is mixing metaphors, which you're not allowed to do, but he is. And why? Because there's two pictures here, right? Two metaphors, if you will. The first one is a clothing metaphor, right? So you want to remove or rid yourself of all moral filth and excess, and as a clothing picture, you would take off those things, remove those things from you. And then there's another picture, receive the implanted word. And the word implanted helps us in its very language, right? It's planted in, implanted, planted in. What's it planted in? It's planted in me. So receive the implanted word, which is able to save you. So here is a clear reminder that God has called us, God has called me, God has called you to get rid of something. So actually when I begin my time with the Lord, I sit down and I say, Lord, if there's, search my heart, if there's any unclean thing, and I ask the Lord for forgiveness for the sins that I still have in my life that maybe I am remembering from the day before. And I know you may be at a spiritual point in your life where you don't have those sins anymore. Um, I still do, and I think if you don't think you do, you have one you didn't know of, maybe two, pride and lying, um, because you do too. So I still today, I rid myself of any moral filth or evil excess, and I ask the Lord's forgiveness and grace. And having received his forgiveness and grace, I come boldly into the throne room of God. And then in doing so, I open my Bible and say, Lord, what do you have for me today? Speak to me through your word. And in doing so, I seek to humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save you. The gospel's implanted, the word of God is implanted, and the word is therefore in us. James saw the heart like a garden in some ways, right? His mixed metaphors here might be, we might say weeds to be, to be pulled, weeds to be pulled, and seeds to be planted. 
Look at 1 Thessalonians 2, uh, 2.13. It says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, received it, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Okay, that's the kind of implantation we're looking for. You received the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. My hope for you, Moody Church, is as God leads in this pastor search process, that one of the things that six, seven months from now, I'll get together with your new pastor, and your new pastor will say to me, I am so blessed. I say, tell me why you're so blessed, because there's so many ways that Moody Church can and will be a blessing to a new pastor, and a new pastor a blessing to you. But he says to me, when I teach the Word of God on Sundays, I see people take this truth and live their lives so that it is implanted in their hearts and lived out in their lives. Now, that's a church that would be prepared to receive, a real faith, a real life, a church that's prepared to receive. Now, I will tell you, in preparing this message, I found myself um, convicted. We're actually in the process of doing a research project on something called the Jesus People Movement, which was this movement from the late 60s, depending on how long you count, maybe to the late 70s, and we're doing these interviews with people. Some of you would uh, know musical groups like the second chapter of Acts. Some of you heard of the second chapter of Acts. Anybody heard of that? Okay, lots of you. So I was with two of them and interviewed them uh, a few weeks ago. And we're bringing together for a big confab, a big 50th anniversary celebration in Southern California this October, Biola University in the Billy Graham Center where I serve. But I will tell you, um, part of what this has been is listening to the stories of faith in some ways have actually convicted, maybe even in a godly way, wounded part of my soul. Because I came to Christ kind of on the late end of that. So those, I would listen to second chapter of Acts or, or other people like that. And I came to Christ and I remember as a new believer, as a young teenager, just going to, we'd go to these like camp festivals and, I, and, and, and it would just be bands and Bible teaching. And I, and I literally would sit there listening to the Bible and writing down notes for sometimes for hours and praying by myself and saying, Lord, what do you have for me? And then fast forward 30, 40 years later, and sometimes when I'm listening to a teacher, I say, well, I'm familiar with that passage. I kind of know what that means. And I find myself, I'm just being honest with you, I find myself casually moving through what God has supernaturally inspired. And I'm imagining there are a lot of people who've been here at Moody Church and love the Lord for a long time who might, like me, sometimes casually move through what God has supernaturally inspired. And I actually was praying about four or five days ago and said, Lord, help me to see the word of God, not as something, oh, I remember, I know what that passage means, but to say, Lord, let it be implanted anew and afresh in me. And my prayer as I prepared this message was that that would be true for me, but that also would be true for you. That if you've been a Christian for 40 years, you are still hearing this passage and saying, I want to rid myself and I want to receive the implanted word of God. But I stand before you and say, I have to remind myself of this and, and thank you for letting me preach this passage because the Lord used it in my life. And the fact that I was a 16-year-old kid, 
And I recognize I had all the time in the world as a 16-year-old kid. Oh, the 16-year-olds don't know how much time they have. Um, and yet I just remember saying, what's next in God's word? What's for me in God's word? Lord, Lord, what do you have me now in God's word? And I think if we get over that, we miss the preparation to receive. Humbly receive is so clear. It's an attitude of open gospel correction. Now I need, you need, we all need an attitude of open gospel correction. Lord, speak into our hearts what your word has for us today. Number three on our outline is to apply the truth. Number one, slow down. Number two, prepare to receive. Number three, apply the truth. It says this beginning at verse um, 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets but a doer acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So uh, mirrors, it's a man who looks in a mirror. Now that's an interesting phrase because I don't know about you, but men, I never carried a mirror. Um, I, this morning I said to my wife, do you carry a mirror? And she says, no one carries a mirror anymore. We use our iPhones. So I'm not keeping up. But I actually, having teenage daughters, um, learned a lot about mirrors about two years ago. So matter of fact, if you wouldn't mind, Andrew, come share these, bring these things here. Because um, I've actually got some mirrors that I want to talk to you about and help us to sort of understand a little bit of these things. I'll take that right there. Excellent. Take that right there. Thank you. Okay, so um, it turns out there are different kinds of mirrors. I don't know if you knew that. I just found that out. So this is actually the mirror that I use in the shower. It's actually a new one. I haven't put it up yet, but um, it's got a few characteristics that you probably need to know. For example, one of the characteristics is it's not made of glass. It's plastic. So it kind of is blurry when you look at yourself in this mirror, which is actually how I prefer my mirrors, kind of blurry. <laughs> I want you to stay with me on every second, right? So this mirror largely exists so I don't remove this amazing goatee during shaving in the shower. So this is a protection. That's all I need to see is the contours of this. So it's a blurry mirror. It doesn't uh, fog up because it's plastic. That's sort of the genius of it. But it's always dirty and it gets sort of, you know, like, I don't know what to call it, like in a water's near something, it sort of gets a little tiling on it. And so this is the mirror that I use. So, and it's been fine. What's the matter with this mirror? Nothing's the matter with this mirror. And so one of my daughters comes to me and she says, Dad, do you actually look at yourself in the mirror sometimes? I was like, well, yes. Kind of a loaded question from your teenage daughter. She said, I think we could work on some things, she says to me. <laughs> like, oh, okay. And I, and I said, she, she said, first, you need a better mirror. And, and I said, well, I, I don't, you know, and I found out that there's actually like different kinds of mirrors, right? And so uh, one of the kinds of mirrors is actually this one, that this is actually from my daughter's uh, bedroom. And this mirror actually lights up. Now, I've worked real hard to avoid lit mirrors for a long, long time. So she said, now, now look at yourself in the mirror. And I went, ooh. And then she did this, and I said, 
go back. Um, <laughs> it's like being at the eye doctor, right? Is this better? No, this, this is a magnifying mirror. So it turns out I have some things on my face called pores. I don't know if you do, I have pores. And my pores are in poor shape, I learned from my daughter. But I didn't know that because I needed to look a little more intently in the mirror. And in doing so, it did not end well. I actually started a moisturizer, to be perfectly honest. So don't, don't judge me, but I'm using a moisturizer now. And it doesn't get stuck in my pores, just in case you were wondering. I learned that was an important thing as well. So my daughter taught me about mirrors. She said to me, you know, we can work on some of those uh, wrinkles. And I, I said to her, sweetheart, I got three wrinkles across my forehead, three major wrinkles, and they're actually named after each of my daughters. <laughs> this is Kristen, Jacqueline, and Caitlin right there. So I said, I'm not sure I want to work on those wrinkles because they remind me of how much I love you. <laughs> but the reality is this, right? So one of the things that I found and I saw is that in looking more closely in a mirror, I found that there were things that I might want to address. Now here's the reality, right? So there were not back then these kinds of mirrors. Matter of fact, mirrors might be like the mirror I started with talking about this sort of not so clear mirror. But here's the deal, and I want you not to miss this, right? When you take a mirror and you are going to intently look at it for the reason of perhaps rejuvenation and repair, you see clearly in a way you've never seen before. Now I want you to know that was not all good things for me. There were things I like, oh, and I gotta be honest, I don't do as much as my 17-year-old daughter would have me to do. But you know, here's the reality. I mean, the, my daughters all have, and I guess teenage girls everywhere have, uh, they have mirrors like this. My, my younger daughter doesn't have a mirror quite like that, but she has a mirror at her little table she sits at, and, and, and it has lights on it. Why? Because they want to see clearly. And I, and, I, and, I, and I get it, and I get that you know, more, women might do that more than men. And, but here's the thing I don't want you to miss, right? If you will take the word of God as seriously as James calls us to, you will be, well, what does it say? For anyone who's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, right? And he looks at himself and goes away at once, forgets it. But he, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, don't miss this, looking into God's word, persevering in looking into God's word, letting it be a reader of you as you're a reader of it, letting it see the little things and the big things, and looking intently at, think of the kind of intensity that someone might do putting on makeup or working on a facial routine, and instead think, what if I had that intensity? That's what James is saying. The intensity of looking with intensity at the word of God, and in doing so, a lighted Bible helps you see, and a present Holy Spirit helps you change. So don't miss that. Right, a lighted Bible helps you see, and a present Holy Spirit helps you change. And in doing so, James's picture becomes so much clearer to us. Now, I want you to hear, there's a, there's a sad group of people in our world, and many of that sad group may be represented here. 
And that's church, um, church attendees who are not looking intently into the lighted, perfect word of God. And what's happening is, is they're going out and about, missing so much. Um, one of, about a year ago, I um, came to church here to share God's word. I got in the car, I came downtown, and as I walked in, um, someone looked at me, and I, know, I don't know your name, whoever you are, let me just thank you, and said to me, Pastor, your hair. And I, I said, what? He said, I think you should go check. <laughs> so I'm like right over there. And a couple of you are looking at me saying, what's the deal with the pastor's hair? So it turns out that morning, having been averse to mirrors, I uh, washed my hair. I put in product for my hair and I kind of do that and push it all back. And then I came to church without actually brushing my hair. So I went into the closet. I'm not closet. I should have gone into a closet. I went to a bathroom, <laughs> hide in a closet. Ah! And you know, I mean, I looked silly and it was, it was funny. I mean, I looked, I'd had this sort of, you know, like alfalfa, remember alfalfa from the old, old day. I was kind of like this, going to put my hair up and and I didn't have a comb, so I just started going like this, and a couple of guys in the bathroom were looking at me. I'm like, it's all good. So I'm just kind of going like this. But you see, I didn't see. And part of the word of God is lived out in the people of God who can sometimes see what you didn't see in the mirror. And sometimes you can receive that. Other people will say, well, how dare you say anything? I'm just going to say, if I come to church and I have forgotten a significant item of clothing or my hair is as alfalfa, um, please tell me. Uh, and if we're in a relationship and I'm a follower of Jesus and you're a follower of Jesus and you don't see me looking at the intently, intently at the word of God, a spiritual mirror, please tell me and please tell one another and let's together look to the word of God again because a lighted Bible helps you see and a present Holy Spirit helps you change. So again, one of the saddest group of people, I think, are church attendees who are missing that, who are coming and having a quick look in a mirror, maybe even here, maybe even here, you're like, hey, you know, that's true. Maybe I need to work on that. But then we go home and we forget about that. Maybe we even mark our Bibles, but our Bibles aren't marking us. And so that ends up with like the person described here. person described here is... Anyone's a hearer of the word, not a doer. He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. He looks at it himself, goes away, and once forget what he was like. But the one, this is the one we want to be, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty. By the way, the phrase law of liberty is a very strange and unusual combination, not frequently found in anywhere outside a few places in the Bible. The law of liberty. This is following Jesus' teaching makes you free. The law of liberty and perseveres. Being no hearer who forgets but a doer her acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now, how might we respond to that? Let me, let me read a little quote from A.W. Tozer, famous preacher of old. He says, there's an evil which in the effect of Christian religion may be more destructive than communism, Romanism, and liberalism combined, he says. 
It is the glaring disparity between theology and practice among professing Christians. So wide is the gulf between theory and practice in the church that an inquiring stranger who chances upon both would scarcely dream that there was any relation between the two of them. An intelligent observer of our human scene would have heard the Sunday morning message and later watched the Sunday afternoon conduct of those who heard it and would conclude that he was examining two distinct and contrary religions. It appears to me that too many Christians want to enjoy the thrill of feeling right but are not willing to endure the inconvenience of being right. Strong words, right? Look honestly in that word of God like a mirror. Look discerningly. Because if anyone's a hearer of the word, not a doer, he's like that man who looks and then looks away. Don't miss this, right? Listen to Jeremiah 5.21. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not. We don't want to be among the category of people who have eyes but see not. Number four, and finally, consider your heart. Now, this passage pretty strongly worded. I don't know that I would show up and say this without seeing it in the Bible first, but look with me at verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he's religious, can I tell you, I want, I want to say this in a loving, gracious way. There's a lot of people at Moody Church who kind of see ourselves as religious. Now, religious is not always a bad thing, but this is a, a long, storied, historic church with a lot of people who've loved God for a very long time and certainly would be in the category that there's some people who might think we are religious. Now, religion is not, James doesn't use the word religion negatively. We'll see that in just a minute. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. I'm gonna come back to that in a moment because we need to dwell on that for a second. But let's see how he positively uses the word. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I don't want you to miss the first part though, right? It says quite clearly, if anyone thinks he's religious and shoots off his mouth, that's not what it says. As a matter of fact, let's go back to see exactly what it says. If anyone thinks he's religious and shoots off his mouth, that's the Ed Stetzer version, the ESV. It's a little different than what's in yours. But that's what it's saying. It doesn't bridle his tongue, right? Some of you, and sometimes me too, we need a tongue piercing. Now, now, stay with me. Don't, don't send me letters. Listen to what I'm saying. Because what's happened is that tongue, which could be our keyboard or could be the words that we actually say, that tongue has not been brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That tongue has not submitted itself to Jesus who died on the cross for our sin and in our place. His hands were pierced for our salvation his victory was made clear through his resurrection, and part of that is to pierce your tongue so that it is submitted and crucified with Christ. And that's a little harder. We'd like to say crucified with Christ, but maybe not my tongue, my words, right? But if you shoot your mouth off all the time, the Bible says your religion is worthless, that's a strong word that I don't want us to miss. In Proverbs 10, 19, the writer says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. And again, in doing so, we learn to control our tongue. That's one aspect of true religion. And then we learn to care for 
others. We care for, right, uh, the widows and the orphans, right? So here's the warning about our words, but don't miss what it says about true religion is this. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Here's what I don't know. Um, I, I met with the Surgeon General this week at a, at a meeting in Washington with some a small group of religious leaders talking about, uh, we're working with them on some things related to actually HIV AIDS. And of course, coronavirus came up and I asked him some questions and I said, it's okay if I share the answers you give and he said yes. One of the things he said is, um, no more handshaking in church. So I hope you've already been following that and you're doing the holy, uh, the holy elbow. Don't go from the handshake to the holy kiss, go to the holy elbow. Um, you know, I usually stand outside there after church and greet every person that comes by, and I will, but I will be greeting you like this. <laughs> and if you reach your hand out to me, I will give you my elbow. <laughs> but one of the things he said that really struck me, I said, so how big of a deal is this going to be? He says, we don't know yet. He says, we got about one to two weeks, and if this tips were to used, it could be a really big deal. So what do you mean? He said, I'm talking churches closed. I'm talking schools closed. You know, that's already the case in Kirkland, uh, Washington. No, churches are not meeting there right now. Schools are closed. As a matter of fact, uh, universities are shutting down in Seattle, and they're kind of the biggest outbreak we have. We don't know how big of a deal. And you might have an opinion on that. And we've, it seems that everyone's turned into suddenly an expert on infectious disease control. And that's fine. But here's what I do know. If this were to continue and we look like Wuhan, China, where churches could no longer meet, let me tell you what Christians did. They went out and cared for those and found those who were left alone. They looked and cared for maybe widows and orphans today and served others. As a matter of fact, let me tell you, throughout history, Christians, when facing these moments, in 253 AD, 252 AD, in a place called Carthage, a devastating plague hit the city. And a guy named Cyprian was the bishop, the leading Christian in town. And the, the plague's actually called the Plague of Cyprian, largely because he explained it, not because he was the source of it. And 252, there was still persecution. The church wasn't widely received. And Cyprian gathered the Christians in the middle of town, and he said this to them. If we're going to do what Jesus did, now right now everyone's running. They're running from the cities. They're burning houses of the sick. said, if we're going to do what Jesus did so that through his poverty we might become rich, I call to you to give personal and financial aid, care and comfort to all according to their need, not their faith. We may very well find ourselves in a situation that Moody Church has been through before in the Spanish flu epidemic, when during that time we ministered bravely and boldly, sometimes at our own expense in the midst of it. 252 AD, a century later, fast forward, by this time emperors were becoming Christians and the next ones weren't Christians, and one of them was named Julian the Apostate. Julian the Apostate's the emperor's name. His mother didn't call him that, but he got later named that in history. And Julian the Apostate, was trying to stop the advance of Christianity, but a plague was coming. It came again, and sickness swept through the empire. This is not an uncommon experience for Christians through the two millennia of the church. And he eventually acknowledged defeat, and he said in a letter to a friend, whilst the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans, Galileans, that Jesus of Galilee, 
The hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity. These impious, they didn't have piety because they didn't worship the gods. They worship just God. These impious Galileans not only feed their own poor, but ours also, welcoming them into their agape or their love community. So when we look to these words of scripture, slow down. Don't be quick to speak. Um, let the word of God be implanted and received. Prepare to receive each and every Sunday and each and every day. Apply the truth. Number three, apply the truth. Say, I want this to be applied and lived out in my life. And then consider your heart. Sisters and brothers, that can be so many things. But when the lead story on all the news is something that could catch all of our attention, might we prepare our hearts now to live faithful gospel lives as those who have gone before us have done. So the message today is filled with truth and application. So I wanna give us the opportunity to say, speak Lord, speak Lord to us. I wanna give you the opportunity to respond to how the Lord's speaking to you today as well. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come before you this day, today, and we are struck by the clear teaching of your word about the dangers of looking at the Bible, hearing it preached on a Sunday, maybe hearing something on the radio on a Wednesday, saying, huh, that's really helpful, and then walking away like a man who ignores what he's seen in the mirror. Father, I do pray that you might speak to our hearts this morning. You might help us. You might help me, Lord. I, I was convicted this week, Lord, as you know, and I pray that my conviction, my confession of that conviction before this congregation might encourage them that all of us can get just a little bit too busy, maybe in my case on the work of the Lord, that I don't spend enough time with the Lord of the work and look to his word and see his word change me. So speak, Lord. Speak to us today. Just as you're praying right now, would you stand with me right now? Let's stand together. Father, as we stand and as we begin to sing, I pray that you might speak, O oh Lord, to our hearts, and we might go from this place, meditate on it, grow, and be changed by it. For it's in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.